Welcome to the Littler Diversity and Inclusion Podcast. Conversations related to the human resource challenges of an ever-evolving workforce. Hello, my name is Cindy Ann Thomas. I'm a principal with Littler and a co-chair of our firm's EEO and diversity and inclusion practice group. I partner with our clients in the diversity and inclusion space with a focus on advising on as well as developing and providing legally compliant training and education initiatives. Let's face it, when we hear the word diversity, it has historically conjured up primary dimensions like race and ethnicity, gender, abilities, and culture for many of us. And these physical and social dimensions are important with many of them regarded as being inherent traits. And in the past half century, these components of diversity have certainly dominated the conversation for many organizations who have sought to be more representative of their workplace and marketplace populations. But experiential and educational dimensions, often referred to as acquired diversity, have a place in the discussion as well. Because in theory, if you bring together a group of people who have different opinions and thinking styles, great things will naturally happen with respect to the people that you attract and retain. And to that end, more companies have been embracing this trend in the DNI field, diversity of thought, in which innovative ideas come from dissimilar teams. This is also known as cognitive diversity. It posits that people in a group don't necessarily need to look differently or identify with a traditionally underrepresented group in order to bring very diverse viewpoints to the organization. Intellectually, this makes sense. After all, we cannot and should not ignore the importance of secondary dimensions like the diversity of thought processes and opinions for meaningful growth and innovation in any organization. To that end, in the past few years, there has been an increasing clamor by organizational leaders to ensure that thinking style is getting the same attention and sometimes more than race or gender. I think this is intriguing. So in our podcast today, I thought we'd dive a little deeper into the implications and challenges associated with the push for this particular dimension. And to have that conversation, I have invited the distinguished author and professor Adia Harvey Wingfield from Washington University in St. Louis. Professor Wingfield, who is also the Associate Dean for Faculty Development there, specializes in research that examines how and why racial and gender inequality persist in professional occupations. She is a contributing writer for The Atlantic, Vox, and Harvard Business Review. Her most recent book is entitled Flatlining, Race, Work, and Healthcare in the New Economy. Professor Wingfield, you who have your very own Wikipedia page, I might add. Thank you for joining me 
in what will hopefully be an edifying conversation for our listeners. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Great. So, you know, let's make sure that we're all on the same page with a comprehensive definition. What precisely is diversity of thought? What does it really encompass, Professor Wingfield? Right. Well, I think you gave a great summary in your introduction. The idea behind diversity of thought in most corporate and business settings is the idea that organizations can achieve these goals of diversity when they bring together people with a variety of different viewpoints, perspectives, ideas, and ways of thinking. And the idea behind that is that that can infuse an organization with a variety of different perspectives and can lead to change and growth that otherwise might not be there. So talk to us, if you can, about why it's gaining so much traction. Walk us through reasons for the concept's rise in popularity, as you see it, and increased references in more DNI policies now than it's mentioned, say, 10 or 12 years ago. Right. So there's an interesting history and trajectory behind the evolution of diversity of thought. If you go back a few decades and you look back to the post-civil rights era, what we saw at that point was a lot of rethinking and a lot of organizations and public policy trying to reconsider how to address racial issues and racial disparities that were present in U.S. society. And what this meant in corporate settings and in business settings was that many organizations were grappling with, the at the time, uh, priorities of affirmative action and the efforts to increase specifically more racial and gender diversity among their ranks, right? And we know that in the aftermath of the civil rights era, this was a period of time where there was rampant and explicit outright racial and gender discrimination. People of color, women of all races were discouraged from applying for jobs. They could be openly denied access to jobs by virtue of their race and gender. The Civil Rights Act changed all that. So organizations were at a place where they did start to focus on how to improve racial and gender diversity uh, among their ranks. What happened after that, though, particularly around the 1980s, was that we saw a lot of backlash to those efforts and that there was a lot of public policy and social and cultural resistance to these ideas of focusing on trying to improve racial and gender representation. And so we start to see at this period of time a shift away from affirmative action dictates and guidelines that focus explicitly on race and gender and more of a shift to where managers and organizations start to focus on diversity. And that might seem like the same thing. It might seem to some of your listeners like affirmative action and diversity are the same thing. But what actually happened concretely and in practice was that this shift towards diversity meant that managers and organizations could describe very broadly what they meant by wanting to achieve more diversity. It did not have to focus as explicitly and directly on these issues of race and gender. Focusing on diversity means that simply you want to bring in a variety of different people. And so the evolution of the focus on diversity meant that organizations started thinking a lot more about diversity writ large and a lot less about racial and gender diversity precisely. And in particular, organizations started thinking and focusing a lot less on what kinds of internal practices they may have been incorporating that suppress actually achieving racial and gender diversity. By saying that the focus was on diversity and by focusing on uh, diversity, broadly speaking, organizations could then say, well, We've achieved diversity. We've got diversity of thought. We've got diversity of opinion. We've got diversity of viewpoints. And again, what that does is that it gives organizations a way to say, 
yes, we're still focused on these issues of diversity. That's still a priority for us, and that's still something that we've made front and center. But when the focus is on diversity of thought, opinion, viewpoint, perspective, and so forth, it can be a lot easier for organizations to overlook, downplay, or minimize the structural and internal processes that lead to underrepresentation for women of all races and men of color. Because if the focus is on diversity of thought, you can, as uh, one DEI leader noted herself, you can have a room full of 12 white men who are blonde and blue-eyed, who are all variants of Chris's or John's, and still have that diversity of thought because of their different backgrounds. But what that mm -hmm. leads you away from thinking about is why you have a room full of leaders who are all white, blonde-haired, blue-eyed <laughs> men, and why there is no racial or gender diversity in that room. Right. More on that soon. This is extremely helpful. So kudos to leaders and organizations who advocate that there's not just one right way to accomplish equity and inclusion. To be mm -hmm. truly innovative and inclusive, companies are realizing that they would do well to acquire their members' different viewpoints, thinking styles, and opinions. We get that. So to that end, there is a school of thought and I know you you know this, Professor, that says the more so-called traditional or inherent dimensions of diversity we have in an organization, the more diversity of thought will naturally emanate. But is the converse of this statement necessarily true? That is, if you have more diversity of thought, will you necessarily gain more cultural and ethnic and gender diversity? I suspect I know the answer to this. <laughs> Right. I mean, <laughs> right. So the thing that I think research has shown pretty overwhelmingly is that you don't end up with racial or gender diversity by accident. And you don't end up with those results if you aren't explicitly trying to achieve those results. And we have a lot of data that has shown this over time. When organizations, when policymakers, when various institutions say that they want to achieve racial or gender diversity, but the way that they do that is by not focusing on racial or gender diversity and focusing on diversity of thought or social class-based diversity or so forth, then you ultimately do not get racial diversity by not trying to achieve racial diversity, which sounds self-evident, but this is a strategy, unfortunately, that a lot of places have taken over the last 30 or 40 years or so. So I think mm -hmm. what's really important to take away from this is that when we talk about uh, achieving diversity of thought, it's important to acknowledge that if that is your primary focal point, if that is your primary end goal, unless you are also openly and explicitly paying attention to how you can achieve more racial diversity, how you can achieve more gender diversity, how you can achieve more diversity along the lines of neurological perspectives, along the lines of cultural backgrounds, along the lines of ethnic or citizenship status, those things don't just fall into place because you have more diversity of thought. If you aren't paying attention to how the procedures in your organization and the strategies that you use for growing the organization, for uh, positioning people into roles for leadership, for your hiring processes, if you're not thinking about how all of those things may also be explicitly minimizing your capability of producing more racial and gender diversity, you're not going to get more racial and gender diversity. And you right. focusing on diversity of thought isn't a substitute for that. Right. So again, I, I'll, I'll play devil's advocate, I suppose, when I ask you this, but isn't it possible that the preoccupation with cognitive uh, diversity is indicative of some really good intent to encourage a comprehensive consideration of what diversity entails? Or 
Is it indicative of a, a naivete of sorts that seems to suggest that we are in a post-racial state or something more, or perhaps some combination of all of the above? Yeah, I, that's an interesting question. I think I tend to focus less on intentions and more on outcomes, right? So mm -hmm. to me, it's less relevant if your intentions are good, if the outcome is that you still have an organization that has very few people of color and white women at the top ranks of leadership and throughout the organization, right? So the best of intentions are fantastic, but if the outcome of your great intentions are that you have an organization where workers of color are underrepresented in middle management and virtually non-existent in the C-suite, your good intentions have not really created the change that allows your organization to be better positioned to prepare to deal with a more multiracial and more diverse world. A colleague of mine, uh, Lauren Edelman at University of Berkeley has written about this. And part of her argument is that uh, many organizations know that they will be scrutinized by regulators to make sure that they have some sort of procedures in place that seem to address issues related to diversity, but the outcomes that they achieve are not necessarily going to receive the same attention. So Lauren's argument is that in organizations, there's much more of a focus on showing that they are in compliance with existing rules and policies and less of a focus on making sure that those existing rules and policies actually yield real results when it comes to racial or gender diversity. So I bring that up because that could be an argument towards uh, what you were just describing. It may mean that there are some places where people have good intentions, but that those intentions don't actually yield results. And maybe that there are some other organizations like the ones that Professor Edelman has found where organizations simply are trying to be compliant and they're not necessarily focused as much on what their outcomes are. But again, to me, I, in my view, the outcomes are what's most important. I think those take precedence over intentions, whether ill-conceived or uh, well-intentioned, if the outcome is still that organizations are not really very representative of what the U.S. and what the world looks like. Fair point. Now, it will be exciting when we, as a society, achieve true equity, equal access to employment opportunities, healthcare, education, et cetera, across all systems. I hope this does not sound too utopian, but we're not there yet. So let's talk about coexistence for the interim. How do we ensure that we don't lose focus on addressing any enduring systemic inequities pertaining to some of the more inherent differentiators like race or gender or sexual orientation and still keep diversity of thought in the mix. Right. Well, like I said, I think that organizations have to be mindful of the fact that there are multiple axes through which various groups have historically and continue to be disenfranchised and marginalized. But I also believe that organizations can think about these complex issues in the fashion that they deserve. I think it's completely reasonable and likely to expect organizations to be mindful of how certain processes can marginalize racial groups when it comes to getting into the workplace, when it comes to uh, fitting into the workplace, when it comes to advancement. I think organizations can also be mindful of how parallel but somewhat different processes have an impact on women of all races, have an impact on people who are uh, from working class backgrounds or have an impact on people who are LGBTQIA. Some of those processes are going to be similar, but they're not all going to be exactly parallel. 
I think that organizations can and should focus on all of those issues uh, and that focusing on those issues allows for creating the more diverse workplaces that we need in today's society. I also think that focusing on those issues is likely actually to yield the diversity of thought that many organizations say that they want. The experiences that people have often give rise to their viewpoints about what types of strategies and approaches matter, what type of different viewpoints about business decisions that they bring to the table, what types of suggestions or ideas that they may have for how organizations can go in a different direction. So interestingly, I think that organizations that are attuned to the importance of having more racial, gender, uh, citizenship, nationality, sexual identity, diversity, mm-hmm. and all of those fronts are actually doing themselves a real favor because they, if they put these processes into place effectively, they are actually creating circumstances where I think they will see more diversity of thought by virtue of the different viewpoints that these workers will bring to the table. All good. Now, Professor Wingfield, I need to take you to the dark side of this issue. (laughs) (laughs) What happens when people try to weaponize diversity of thought? And here's what I mean by this. It has happened certainly to me on more than one occasion when I will be facilitating a workshop on diversity and inclusion. And we may be right in the middle of exploring some of the most resilient challenges for the organization. Let's say dismal data around race or gender, for instance. And in the middle of that discussion, suddenly, almost explosively, some cranky person belts out, what about diversity of thought? And the more time we spend on some of these inherent dimensions, the louder that peeved individual gets. What about diversity of thought? almost in an effort uh, to drown me out or one of their colleagues uh, while insisting that they don't see color. You you (laughs) penned an article, you know, you penned an article for The Atlantic a few years back entitled, Color Blindness is Counterproductive. So I would be interested in your thoughts on this. Yeah, that's a great question. And in that article, I talked a lot about this tendency to valorize and idealize this idea of colorblindness, this idea of saying that uh, I don't see color, I don't notice race, I don't pay attention to people's uh, racial identity, it's just not something that I notice or see or think about. And I think that's become a really common discourse in the way that we talk about racial issues in a variety of settings. But the problem with that becoming such a common discourse and the problem with this idea around colorblindness is that if you are a person who is determined not to see or focus on or acknowledge color or race, then that puts you in a position where it then becomes a lot harder to recognize and acknowledge racial inequality, right? Mm -hmm. It's very difficult to realize the way that racial inequality persists in a variety of settings and environments if you are determined not to see race, right? If you're determined Mm -hmm. not to see race or not to pay attention to it, then how can you acknowledge, for example, racial disparities in maternal mortality? How do you make sense of the fact that black women are significantly more likely to die in childbirth than are their white counterparts? And that's controlling for a variety of factors, including educational status, uh, income level, and so forth. That's not a problem that you can solve if you're not attuned to the racial dynamics of that problem because it is front and center a racial problem, right? Exactly. So I think that when, right, so I think that when you are in situations, you generally, not you specifically, but when uh, there are situations where people are emphasizing and really doubling down on this 
need to not see color and not to focus on race, that really does a disservice in terms of addressing issues and problems that are present in society. And from an organizational standpoint, it really, I think, puts organizations in a position where they are ill-equipped to best create the types of racially and gender diverse personnel and workforces that they need. Because <laughs> being oblivious to or refusing to acknowledge these differences ultimately means that you cannot put solutions in place that achieve more racial diversity, which again, I think is absolutely necessary as we continue to become a more multiracial society. And, and Professor Wingfield, is it not problematic when the most vociferous voices in the room bellowing for diversity of thought don't look at all different from one another and are not black or <laughs> transgendered or single mothers or individuals seated in wheelchairs, right? In other words, right. the diversity uh, of thought give advocates of the status quo permission to avoid uncomfortable conversations about those dimensions. Right, so I wasn't gonna assume about the speakers in your workshop, <laughs> but now that you have put it out there, <laughs> But now that you put it out there, I'll say that I would have speculated that you would be less likely to see that kind of emphatic support for diversity uh -huh. of thought among people who do not hail from underrepresented groups. And I think the reason I, for that is probably self-evident, right, that people from underrepresented groups are aware of the challenges that they face being underrepresented. And they are aware that diversity of thought is probably, or they, the perceived lack of diversity of thought is probably not the most salient problem that they face in these workplaces. Right. And, and I took you there, Professor. Uh, and I, can tell, <laughs> I can tell you that the people who clamor for, you know, a, a discussion on that dimension are typically not members of traditionally underrepresented communities. Right. Right. Yes. I have to say that that doesn't surprise me. <laughs> <laughs> so some would say that having a room full of diversity of thought won't decrease the high churn or low productivity among uh, those from underrepresented populations who don't feel like they belong. Do you have any strategies here? Oh, yes. So there's research that also shows some promising findings in terms of what organizations can do to create more diversity on all fronts, racial and gender diversity in particular. One yes. thing that I really stress from the work of my colleague Frank Dobbin uh, at Harvard, Wendy Moore at Texas A&M University, these are mm -hmm. researchers who have found that it's really important for organizations to be attuned to how they are bringing in workers and how they are engaging in certain hiring practices. And one of the things that we know from a lot of research is that particularly in today's world and in today's market, networks and connections matter enormously and how people have access to jobs, particularly but not exclusively high status professional occupations. People rely on references, people rely on connections to those who they know. Um, my colleague David Padula at Harvard has also written a lot about this process of the relationships and networks that people have and how they get one in the door for hiring. Uh, but we also know that networks tend to be largely racially homogenous and that by focusing so heavily on people in your existing social circles or professional circles, this is one of the many ways that organizations can end up missing out on people who are potential talent for the organization and the company, but who simply by virtue of our uh, existing 
often racially segregated networks don't have the same connections that allow them to have access to the people who are in the know, so to speak. So organizations can think more about their hiring processes. They can also think more about some of the internal processes that they put into place in terms of uh, who has access to mentors and what mentoring relationships look like uh, in organizations. It's also important for managers at various levels to be supportive of and focused on these issues related to creating more racial diversity. For example, one approach in the research has been to argue that managerial leadership at both the top and the middle management levels has to be consistent and explicitly focused on these questions of creating more racial diversity in order for outcomes to, to be realized, right? That if you have an organization where Leadership at the top says, yes, diversity is an, important, is an important thing that we focus on and that we care about, but middle management, people who are in middle management roles are oblivious, indifferent, or hostile to these types mm -hmm. of initiatives. They are less likely to actually be realized. So some synergistic focus at both levels is really critical for creating these outcomes. So there right. is work, like I said, with my colleagues that I've mentioned who have done a lot of extensive research to show what can be done successfully and how organizations can uh, make these kinds of changes. But it's critical, again, to make sure that organizations are focused on this type of diversity and not that diversity of thought becomes a substitute for actually doing the work to achieve more racial and gender diversity. Right. Now, Professor Wingfield, when we first connected about this program a year ago, life as we knew it was upended with the arrival of COVID into the country. Since then, economic tumult, George Floyd, racially divisive politics, questions about the disparities involved with the dissemination of the vaccine, and a whole host of events that exposed the fault lines in our country's institutional ecosystems in a way that we have likely never experienced before. That said, I have heard that diversity of thought will absolutely be needed for us to emerge from the economic crisis that is pummeling us currently. That companies will have to be truly innovative as they reimagine their post-COVID business strategies and sustainability. Many businesses in this country and in, indeed around the world are in the fight of their lives and a great deal of creativity will apparently be required in the months and years to come. So maybe you could square those dynamics up for us. Yeah, sure, that's, that's such an interesting question. So I think it's 100% true that companies will have to reassess and prepare to function in a post-COVID world and that there will necessarily be um, a need for rethinking and reimagining how they proceed and how they go forward. And a lot of creativity is going to be required around that. But it's interesting when you think about the examples that you just mentioned for me, George Floyd, racially divisive politics, the questions about not only the dissemination of the vaccine, but who even is disproportionately contracting coronavirus and which communities are disproportionately dying from coronavirus. These are all questions that are centrally questions that revolve around these issues of race, racial disparities, and racial inequality, right? Mm -hmm. So it's hard for me to see how companies are in a position to resolve these and related questions without taking into consideration how race matters in the creation of these, these, these issues in the first place, right? I mean, the issues with George Floyd, 
expose the realities of policing for many communities of color and racial disparities in how that policing is structured. The issues with the coronavirus revealed uh, racial health disparities in the U.S. and what that means for which communities were more likely to really take the toll of this virus. And even we think about why the virus was so prevalent among communities of color, we know that a lot of that has to do with the fact that black and brown workers are disproportionately more likely to be frontline workers who are in these jobs where they don't have the luxury of staying home and working from home and isolating from other people. They are exactly. involved in doing transit work. They are involved in food service work. They have to leave the house and expose themselves to a public, not always a mask wearing public, in order to, to do their job. So right. I think these examples that you give underscore the importance of how these kinds of issues rely on being attuned to and acknowledging racial issues directly rather than alighting or marginalizing them by virtue of thinking about other issues or by way of focusing on just different viewpoints that people have about their, their thought processes. You don't resolve issues around racial health disparities by not talking about race. You don't resolve issues around race in the workplace by not talking about how race is manifested in the workplace. So mm -hmm. while I completely agree that a level of creative thought is going to be necessary for companies to, to move forward, that creative thought also has to involve and centralize the experiences of those who have historically and continue to be disenfranchised by many of the companies that now say that it's important for them to want to express their opposition to systemic racism and that they that say that they want to focus on showing that they are committed to racial equity. If you're really going to do that, you have to do that by focusing on racial equity, not just saying it, but then displaying an internal commitment to diversity of thought. In retrospect, I make it impossible, really, with the with the way that I have worded that question, you know, for, for one to see it any other way than how you have just answered, that you can't ignore <laughs> those dynamics. So uh, I apologize, but but not really. <laughs> <laughs> no apologies necessary. <laughs> <laughs> so against this landscape, how do organizations insulate themselves from the the prospect that the refrain of what about diversity of thought does not ring hollow for members of communities of color who have been devastated by the disproportionate effects of, of the events uh, of the past year that we've been discussing. Right, and I think that is where leadership really becomes critical. I mentioned before that uh, that the research shows that in order for organizations to really move the needle on these kinds of issues, a leadership strategy is necessary, not just from the top, but throughout the organization and throughout a company. I think that if you have leaders in place who are, again, at the top C-suite levels, who are really committed to finding out what internal processes they may be engaging in that are stymieing their ability to create more racial diversity, but also empower middle managers and make it clear that middle managers can also take a significant role in doing internal audits and reconsidering various workplace practices and working collectively with others on their teams and at that middle management level. I think that's when you start to see these changes really happen. I think that you don't mm -hmm. see it if it's only at one level or the other, but that organizations have to have a comprehensive internal strategy that incorporates buy-in at various levels and commitment at various levels in order to really make these changes uh, and to make these changes occur uh, in a visible fashion. Perfect. So rallying cry for diversity of thought is not going to go away. And our conversation here is not intended to do that. I assure my listeners out there. 
But I do pride myself on the ability to provide our listeners with any tools and solutions. You have provided some really uh, helpful strategies so far. Any final tools and solutions that you have, for instance, on, on how we can effectively ensure that cognitive diversity can be engaged, actually, to create more equitable systems and practices for organizations? Is there any way that diversity of thought can be applied to meaningfully advance our efforts in narrowing very real and still very present racial and gender divides? So in other words, you know, what is the most constructive way to keep diversity of thought in the inclusion conversation? Right, that's a great question. And I think I, I encourage listeners to go back to what I was saying before about how uh, in many cases, I think diversity of thought can flow very naturally from creating more racial, gender, ethnic, sexual identity diversity in various spaces, right? And I think that when organizations are better able to achieve that diversity at multiple levels, they will get diversity of thought because they'll have ideas that stem from people who have very different experiences and very different backgrounds by virtue of their racial, gender, class-based uh, experiences and so forth. One concrete example I can point to, I was just doing some uh, research recently looking up these questions of the business case for diversity. There were some Wall Street Journal articles that touched on this pretty recently. And one point that the articles were making was that in Procter & Gamble, I believe, after focusing more on creating more diversity and including more African-American scientists on the team, the company focused more on creating products that were marketed and designed for African-American hair care. And that this was a direct function of incorporating more racial diversity onto that team and thinking about ways that the company could broaden their outreach and broaden their um, programming and products to go in different directions that had historically been untapped. Now, there's no way to say for sure that if the company had not had more racial diversity, that they wouldn't have come up with this idea on their own. But I think that you can certainly make the case that having more racial diversity on the teams of people who are coming up with new product ideas and having people from backgrounds where, as African-Americans, they may have been directly attuned to the fact that sometimes it can be difficult to find hair products that uh, are designed to focus on their particular needs. And that there might be a consumer market for that group uh, available if the company was not reaching and not tapping. That kind of racial diversity brought diversity of thought to the table, which led to different products being created, which led to creating a specific market outcome and a specific uh, product yield. So I think that it's really useful to think about diversity of thought, not as a firsthand goal or not as a direct targeted outcome, but something that can come out of creating more racial and gender diversity and something that's likely to come out of creating more racial and gender diversity, just because of the very different experiences that groups have in our society and what they can bring to the table once they're actually at the table. Precious pearls of wisdom, Professor. Thank you. Thank you. I really enjoyed the discussion. Once again, Professor Adia Harvey Wingfield from Washington University in St. Louis. Thank you so much for taking the time to dialogue around this thought-provoking issue. I hope you have enjoyed this podcast just half as much as I have enjoyed bringing it to you. Please feel free to reach out to us at podcasts 
at littler.com. If you should have any questions about this episode, or if you would like to discuss any component of your organization's needs with me or another Littler attorney. Thanks for listening. The purpose of this program is to provide helpful information for employers addressing the latest developments in labor and employment relations. It is not a substitute for experienced legal counsel and does not provide legal advice or attempt to address the numerous factual issues that arise in any employment-related issue. To discover other labor and employment podcast series from Littler, the largest global employment and labor law practice, visit littler.com slash podcasts.